you uh, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. Uh, we're taking a break from the Gospel of John during the Advent season. We're going to be focusing on this short passage from 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. I'll, I'll, I'll give you it in advance. We're going to be in this passage every week for the next four weeks as we gather uh, together for Advent. I, I, had, uh, I told the group uh, earlier we had no less than four different people um, ask me why, why First Peter for Advent? That seems wrong. Are you sure First Peter? We're gonna they're gonna do that. Um, shouldn't we be in, in Luke or Matthew or or one of those other ones? But uh, I, I think what you'll find as we go through this passage is that it has a lot of Advent relevance. Uh, Advent simply means coming. If you've always wondered, I, I, maybe you're like me, wondering what does Advent even mean? Why do we call it that? It means coming. And so that's what we celebrate. It's our anticipation of the coming of Christ. It's, it's what we just sang, Come thou long expected Jesus, right? Born to set thy people free. We sing these songs year after year. Um, if you're anything like our family, you've been listening to these songs in the car pretty much ever since you went trick-or-treating, right? It's just kind of once November hit, <laughs> the Christmas music started blaring in our house. You've probably started decorating uh, the house or, or, and, and stuff. I've still got some work to do on my house, as my son pointed out yesterday, that the reeds are not hung, Dad. That's our job. And so uh, I've got, I got work to do. Uh, but what we want to do over the course of the next month together is, is just settle into this passage and explore those themes of Advent, of hope, uh, of peace, of joy uh, and love, all of which lead us to what, what we'll do on Christmas Eve here, the, the coming of the true Christ for us. So would you stand with me now as we turn our eyes to the Word of God, as, as we stand even now today in anticipation uh, of the God of the universe not just being present here. Uh, he, he's everywhere. He, he's, we know that. But of Him speaking to us through his word. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ." Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this time of year. I thank you that we can finally sing all those hymns and songs that seem to get shelved for the other 11 months of the year, I thank you that you have sent your Son to come and save us. And Lord, I pray that what will happen now is you will speak to us through your word. I pray that you will move me 
out of the way as much as you possibly can. Don't let my uh, stammering tongue, don't let my inability, don't let my weakness and frailty stand in the way of you speaking to your people powerfully today through your word. Lord, I pray that we would come in an Advent mentality, in anticipation, in hope that you're going to speak. Give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, and Lord, awaken our souls today. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Today we're, we're focusing on that Advent theme of hope. And what we're going to see as we get going here is that hope, as Gregory even just said a minute ago, in fact, he almost did the whole first point of the sermon. It's that hope is not a wish. Hope is not a wish. It's not. A wish has no foundation other than our own desire. It's just whatever we want. My kids wish for stuff all the time with absolutely no hope that they're going to get it, right? I mean, I can't afford that car, son, and, and you... Don't, you're not licensed to drive at this point. So, it, right? so we wishes don't have any foundation, anything other than our desire. But hope is different than a wish. Hope. Hope is rooted in the past. Hope is held in the present. And hope has eyes that look toward the future. Hope isn't something altogether different than faith. It's not. In fact, John Frame says that, that hope is a kind of faith. He says, faith directed toward the future fulfillment of the promises of God. And what Peter tells us here in this passage is that our hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's where our hope is to be found. And I know, listen, I know it's Christmas time. I am fully aware of that. I have been in Christmas mode for the last month and a half, just getting all geeked out about, about coming up here and decorating the church. I've had Tanya up here helping me look at where would we even put stuff. We've met after worship services going, how high should a wreath be on this wall when we hang it there? Like we've had, I've been in Christmas mode, overload, honestly, for the last, for the last few weeks. And so shouldn't we be talking today about you know, wise men and shepherds out in a field and manger scenes and, and all that. I mean, isn't that what we talk about? And we, you know, listen, we are. We're going to hit on those things through Advent. You can't do Advent without talking about the birth of Christ. But what Peter wants us to understand in this passage is that without the resurrection of Jesus, Bethlehem doesn't really matter a whole lot. And so our hope isn't rooted in a manger scene. That's part of it, to be sure. It starts there, and the whole story of Jesus goes together as one story. It's his whole life. But today, our living hope, our living hope is rooted in an empty tomb and a resurrected Jesus. Just this week, uh, somebody forwarded me an article, which I always appreciate. I'm not saying that, like, don't forward me articles if you find something interesting. This is an article about a book that's coming out uh, about, and it's by a guy who's written this book, and it's supposed to be from a historical perspective, and he's not calling in to uh, question the resurrection of Jesus. He's questioning the existence of Jesus altogether. And these things come out every year about this time, and, and really, it's, it's basically just marketing strategy. People are, and this will be a reminder for you, People are interested in, in spiritual things this time of year. People just get keyed into it. 
And I don't know if it's white lights on trees. I don't know, I don't know if it's just the fact that Christmas is coming and people are constantly saying the word Christ. I, I don't know what it is, but every year about this time, one of these books will come out too because they want to grab hold of the sensationalism of this season and try and, and try, well, honestly, they just want to make some money off of the thing. That, that's, that's, really, that's really all it is. And I'm not going to tell you the name of the author. I'm not going to tell you the name of the book. It's not because not I think you would read it and believe it, but because I don't want you to waste your money or give them clickbait thinking that they're getting somewhere. I don't, I don't want them to even have that satisfaction. I will tell you this. There's not one legitimate historian on the planet Earth who would tell you for even a second that Jesus didn't exist. No reliable historian of any respect would actually question the existence of Jesus. Now, there are great discrepancies, though, uh, with regard to what historians believe about his life. They're all over the map on that. All sorts of varying opinions about who he was and what he did. But no legitimate, no unbiased historian who has considered any of the evidence would ever land at the conclusion that, that Jesus didn't exist. But I will tell you this, his existence alone isn't enough to give us hope. You see, for the child of faith, it's not, it's not that Jesus existed in the past. It's not that he existed in the past, but that he exists now in the present. You see, that's the faith of the Christian. It's that not only did Jesus live in the past, but that he lives now actively in the present. Without, without the resurrection, there is no faith to be had in Christ. And there would be no reason for us to hope at all. The resurrection is a truth that has massive implications, not just for you, but for every single person that will ever live on this earth. And it, it's, uh, it's Tim Keller who said, if, if it happened... It changes our lives completely. It's truly the issue upon which everything in this life hangs. And listen, just to be clear, nobody in the day of Jesus, nobody in his time was expecting him to be resurrected. We see no evidence of that, and we have no reason to believe that that would have been their mindset. Don't buy into the foolishness that is the claim uh, that people in his day, these simpletons in his day, were more likely to believe in a resurrection. That's just not true. We just walked through Jesus raising Lazarus. If you remember that, the sisters never had any thought that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. They had no expectation that the brother was going to come out of the tomb. In fact, if you remember, Martha at the tomb was going, oh, let's not take that rock away because it's going to smell bad. That's how confident they were in a resurrection. Nobody had that idea. In fact, both the Jews and the Greeks would have found the idea of a, re- of a resurrection not only to be impossible, but to be undesirable. It was something they didn't want. It certainly wouldn't be the way you would go about marketing a new worldview. This is not how you start. Nobody in their right mind would ever choose a virgin birth and a resurrection as the two bookends of a new religion if they were making it up from the start. And they certainly wouldn't choose women to be the first witnesses to such a thing. In fact, because of the cultural prejudices of the time, uh, N.T. Wright has argued that, that the early Christian movement would have faced enormous pressure to alter the message in order to remove women from the accounts altogether. You women should be a little upset about that. We have progressed since then. By the way, we have Jesus largely to thank for that. 
The only reason to have them in the story at all is if they were actually there, and that's actually how it happened. And that's why Peter calls it a living hope. He calls it a living hope because he's saying Jesus is our living hope, and he isn't buried anymore. Listen to me. The tomb is still there, right? I mean, you can go and visit it. I had a friend this week go to Israel, and I followed the whole thing on Instagram, as sad as that is, that I'm that guy watching Instagram videos of my friend traveling around Israel, going to the, the Jordan River, going to the temple, going up to the, to the tomb, uh, the, the, uh, and going into the garden, and I'm watching all this. And, 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 and so you can go. You, if you've got money enough to go, you can jump on a plane, you can go over there, you can see these places. You can go to where they think the tomb was, but I'll give you the spoiler, it, Jesus isn't in it. He's not there. You see, our living hope as Christians is rooted in the past. It's rooted in the truth that Jesus is alive today. And it's a living hope because it's being held right now in the present. It's alive. Look at what Peter says in verse 5. He says, he says that you as God's people are by God's power, this is in verse 5, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He, he says that's happening now. That's what's happening right now. You're presently being guarded. The faith, the hope is presently being guarded. And so even in this moment, even in this moment, you're being guarded through faith. Now, now faith is something that only exists if it's being practiced. It only exists if it's being practiced. And, and that's a tough reality for some of us to understand because we've been raised in a culture where passive, where inactive, where illegitimate faith is being passed off as if it's authentic. And one of the greatest differences between our Christian culture today and that of the early church is that we have some idea of what it means to be a Christian and it really isn't scandalous to claim to be one. It was for them. There was great risk to their health and safety if they claimed to be of Christ. For the early church, claiming Christ was a shortcut to marginalization. You're probably going to lose your job. You're probably going to have to move out of your neighborhood. You're probably going to have some family members question you. You're going you're gonna to not get invited to, to Christmas parties. You're going you're gonna to miss out on, uh, on those women's nights because now you're going to be that girl who has those weird beliefs. That's what it was in the first century. For us, it's still it's largely acceptable. That's why our towns decorate with Christmas trees. That's why there's wreaths on the side of the streets and businesses here. I know people seem to think that, that our world is so difficult to live in, but y'all, we have it so easy. Now, there are parts of the world where that's not the case, right? I mean, there are parts of the world where, if, where being a Christian is a legitimate risk of your life, but that's not that's not the truth here. And please don't buy into that idea. And we might be heading that direction. I'm not saying it's not getting more difficult here, but we are not there yet, at least not in this community. In our day, because there's very little risk, people claim Christ all the time with absolutely no fruit to demonstrate that they actually believe what it is they're claiming to be. It's like the apple tree in our yard that produces no apples, right? I tell my kids, hey, what kind of tree is that? That's an apple tree. And my son and our kids, they look at me as if I have lost my mind. Why? Because there are no apples on it. It doesn't produce any fruit. 
I tell them, look, that's what the, that's what the sticker said at the store when we bought it. In fact, somebody gave you a gift card to buy you an apple tree when you were born. And so we went to Woodley's and we bought an apple tree. And they said, what, do you have a horse you're trying to feed or something? And we were like, no, uh, we just want an apple tree. And they're like, you know, it's not going to grow apples unless you plant two of them. I'm like, the gift card's for this much. I'm getting one tree. And so we, <laughs> we got one apple tree and we planted it in our yard. And it at one time it produced fruit. And all of a sudden my kids were like, you're right. And how'd they know? Because it had an apple on it. It was all I could do for like five years not to tape an apple to that tree. I promise y'all. It was, they thought I was lying. Because an apple tree is supposed to produce apples. It's the same with us. It's the same with you and me. Now, we put a Jesus fish on the back of our car. Uh, we show up fairly often, fairly often on Sunday mornings, as long as there's not anything else possibly getting in the way of us being here. Or if it's not a home game. Home games are tough, right? Home, home games, those are tough. Um, maybe our kid has a project next month we really need to start working on. We quote a Bible verse every once in a while on Facebook. Now with that app, you can make it look super spiritual. You can like put a background behind it of like wise men walking into town. We volunteer once a year for a service project. We might even, with great courage, say the blessing at lunch in a restaurant. You know, that's not exercising the faith. You know that, right? I mean, that's, that's not bad stuff. So volunteering is not a bad thing to do. Saying the blessing is not a bad thing to do, but that's not exercising the faith. In fact, every single one of those things can be done absolutely in our own strength. Going to Christ in our convenience isn't faith. That's actually a form of self-centered legalism. If all your spiritual life in Christ is about is, is checking off the boxes to make sure that you don't get kicked out of the Jesus like fan club, your membership doesn't get revoked, that's not faith, man. That's legalism. And so, I mean, I hate to tell you this, but you're actually a Pharisee. That, that's what you are. You're a Pharisee. You're religious, but you're not saved. And that's not enough to... It's not enough to occupy your Sunday mornings and then see you lost for eternity. You see, the heart of the legalist says, I will do this in order to earn the acceptance of God. But exercising the faith is pursuing holiness in this life. It's practicing the faith through the, through the disciplines of the faith. That's what Paul talked about in 1 Timothy 4, 7. That's where he told Timothy, who was a young pastor, he says, train yourself, train yourself, exercise yourself for godliness. Listen, there are a ton of silly myths that exist in our culture. You all know this, but one of them is that you can be a Christian by virtue of the family you are born into. That's, that's one of the big myths that still exists in our culture today. That Well, my grandmother, you know, she was at church every week. And then my parents, man, they were at church every other week. Well, how about you? Well, I thought they did it for me. I thought they lived the faith for me. So, I mean, I was born into a Christian home, so I'm a Christian. Well, see, that's, that's, that's not true at all. That's not true at all. It's that, it's that by virtue of my birth, I'm inside the family of God. That's the insider's position, right? That's the Pharisee position, that I was born into the right family. The other myth, which I would call the outsider position, is that if we can somehow learn to be good enough, God will owe us his favor. And he'll find us acceptable, and he'll bring us inside the camp. 
It's the outsider's position. But that position eliminates the grace of God and undoes the sacrifice of Jesus. And so it's all legalism. It's all man-centered. But the gospel, the gospel says that every one of us is guilty, right? That's Romans uh, 3.23, right? That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So nobody is naturally a child of God. That's, that's not our default position. You aren't born into it. To be a Christian means that everything changes for you. Because to be a Christian is to receive and to rest upon Jesus Christ alone. It's to trust that He paid the penalty for my sin, that He took my debt, that He paid for my sin. And that not only that, but He's by His grace, He has imputed His righteousness to me. He took my sin and gave me His righteousness. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tim Keller says the first Christians had a resurrection-centered view of reality. They believed that the future resurrection had already begun in Jesus. They saw the empty tomb. They experienced encounters with Jesus. And we could go through there. Paul talks about 500 people seeing Jesus at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some had fallen asleep. We have encounters with him meeting people on the road and explaining the Bible to them. We have evidence of this happening. These people saw the empty tomb and it enabled them to exercise hope in the present because it gave them eyes to look toward the future. Listen, Christians are a people of hope. Or at least we should be. We can't help but be hopeful, you and I, because we look forward to something. We look forward to something. Our kids are looking forward to Christmas Day right now. Um, if you've got kids or if you're a human, you probably feel that same anticipation that Christmas is going to come. There are going to be gifts of some sort, and, and it's going to be a fun day. Man, our kids are losing it right now. The truth is our whole crew, our, the whole, all of us are just so ready for that because it's such a fun time together. Uh, we have an expectation that it will come. And we have an idea of what it will be like when it arrives, although with a five-year-old, it's going to be wild. We know that. It creates this stirring in us, right? This stirring inside our hearts because we believe that it will be good. You see, we have a reason to hope. In verse 4, Peter gives us a glimpse of what Christians have to hope for. He calls it an inheritance. You see that? He calls it an inheritance. Now, an inheritance is always a future something. It's something that's, that's yours already, but, but also not yet, right? Like it's yours and that it is, it is going to happen, but you don't have it yet. Inheritance is always future. We think of the prodigal son who requested his inheritance before his father had passed away, right? An inheritance is always a future hope, but it's always based on a present reality. Like, I have no thought that I will inherit millions of dollars. Now, I wish that would happen. I do. I, I wish that would happen. I have no hope that that's going to happen. My mother-in-law is shaking her head going, nope. <laughs> right? No reason to hope. Now, I can wish all day. I can look for lamps and genies everywhere in the world, but I have no reason to literally hope that that's going to happen. That's the difference between a wish and a hope. But what Peter tells us 
of this inheritance. Look at that. Look back at it. He says, it is imperishable. It is undefiled. It is unfading and it is kept in heaven for you. So listen to me. What that means is that inheritance, the inheritance that God has for his people is unlike anything else that you have ever seen, anything else that you've ever held or touched, anything else that you've ever smelled. It is unlike anything else that you have ever experienced. The inheritance that Peter speaks of is something totally unique because everything that you have ever seen, everything that you have ever held or touched, everything that you have ever experienced in this life is perishable, it is defiled, it is fading, and it is here on earth. So listen, the most beautiful river that you have ever seen, if you stand there and you look at it long enough, you'll see a dead fish floating down through it. The most glorious mountaintop view that you could ever climb up and reach will still have the leftover contrails of the last 747 who flew above it at 31,000 feet. Everything in this life, every single thing, even you are fading. Listen, the greatest work of art, imagine this, the greatest work of art, whatever you think that is, right now is fading under the light of the sun or even under the fluorescent lights or just time is eating away at it. You can go and look at the Sistine Chapel today, Michelangelo's great work, and you know how much of Michelangelo's work you still see? Zero. It's been repainted three times since he did it. Now, they've done, they've done it well. It's not the original. Why? Because everything in this life fades. Everything in this life is perishable. <clears throat> but not that inheritance that Peter speaks of. I'll do this one for the kids. Every present under your tree, this one's really for me too because I get geeked out at Christmas. Every, every present under your tree or on the magic sleigh with UPS on the side, whatever, um, wherever those things are right now, those things are going to fade. They're going to break. We've had a remote control car that didn't even make it to lunchtime on Christmas Day one year. Everything that we see, even now, every single thing, if you were to look around this room, every single thing is fading. Every single person is fading, even you. Even right now, your body, you know this, is fighting against infection. Your body is warring against this world right now to keep you alive because this world is dead set on killing you. Even you, right now, one day, even with all of our advances, even with all of our technology, One day, your hundred years or so will come to an end and you will be gone. I like how Anne Lamott has said it. She said, 100 years from now, all new people. The greatest thing that we can know is that the, the roof will cave in, the walls will fall down, and the house that you call home one day will be blown away by the wind. And we know this to be true, even if you built yours out of big old bricks. But we have a hope. We have a hope because our eyes aren't fixed on this world, you see. But it's fixed on Christ in the world to come. As David said in Psalm 20, he said, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Listen to me, if you trust in this government, if you trust in uh, the military, if you trust in an education system, if you trust in a big wall on the border, if you trust in your own physical abilities or your mental capacities, if you trust in your bank account, or if you trust in the next trinket that you buy yourself to make yourself happy, You're trusting in chariots and horses. 
You're trusting in temporal things that will ultimately perish, ultimately defile, and ultimately fade. And honestly, you'll probably forget about them by the next time you purchase that next trinket. But the empty tomb, the empty tomb and the resurrected Jesus give us a glimpse of a future glory that is to come. It reminds us that someone, that someone one day is going to have, it depends on how you look at it, he's either going to have the most incredible distinction or he's going to have the saddest distinction that's ever existed. But somebody one day is going to have the distinction of having the last funeral. Somebody's going to have that honor. (coughs) Because there's not going to be any more mourning. There's not going to be any more crying. There's not going to be pain anymore. There won't be any more surgeries or miscarriages. You know that, right? Like There won't be any doctors in the new heavens and the new earth. That's one of those professions that right now we highly value that one day is going to be meaningless. There won't be any more abuse. There won't be any more hate. There won't be more fights with your kids. There won't be more doubt, no more insecurity. All the family counselors are going to be out of work one day. There won't be any phone calls that, we, that shake us to our core. Because there will be no more suffering. There will be no more fear. And so we stand, you and I, we stand today. Even now, our hope being held in the present, being rooted in the past looking to the future, looking to that time when those things will come to an end. It's what Revelation 21 says, right? For the former things have passed away. And we have that hope. That's the living hope. That's what Advent reminds us of. It means that we are a hopeful people. I don't want to sound angry. Do I, sound, I hope I don't sound angry. I want to sound positive. You should be a hopeful person. You know that? I look at every single person. Every single person in this room, you should be just absolutely overwhelmed with the hopefulness of what's to come. You know what drives me nuts is that when people tell me all the time that this world is going to hell, and we go, yeah, yeah, you're right. They're not right. They're they're not right. The world is not going to hell. The world is absolutely going to be redeemed and restored, and you, you're given the privilege of participating in that of joining God in the renewal of all things. But if you don't have the hope, it'll just be another game you play. If you don't have the hope of Christ, resurrected, living today, walking with you, leading you, guiding you, strengthening you, it'll just be another religious duty. There in verse 5, that's the inheritance that is ours in Christ. A salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. That's our hope. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Can I encourage you to hold on to that during this season? Like, like just death grip that. That as good a day as you might have with your family on Christmas Day does not even begin to compare to the joy of that day with Christ. Can I also encourage you to give that gift to the people around you? It's okay. You've been shopping already. Your boss knows it. He knows you've been online shopping like crazy. They see it all. Some of you have gone to the holiday market, spent entire days walking around that place looking for stuff. You have shopped and shopped and shopped. Can I encourage you to give one good gift this year? They've got a new Patagonia already. 
And we live in South Carolina. (laughs) Nobody here climbing Everest. You don't need a north face. Give them a good gift. Give them that gift of Christ. Invite your neighbors to experience the hope of Christ this year. Invite them to join with you in that life. I promise you there is no greater gift that you can give. That's the hope we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you don't give up on us, that you hold us in your arms, that you grip us even when we try to wiggle away from you like a like a spoiled little toddler trying to get away from our Father who loves us. You hang on to us, and Father, I pray that you would, that you would help us to walk more faithfully with you. Help me to walk more faithfully with you. Help me to be a person of hope not just during the Advent season, but every season, every day. It's not even a possibility that this world gets to go to hell. Not as long as it's held in your hands. I pray that you'd help us to fight for it too. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.